Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, a podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Francis. The story of Francis Farmer's meteoric rise to fame in Hollywood and the tragic turn her life took when she was blacklisted. Okay. First of all, that's not this movie. <laughs> Part of this movie? I have I have some feelings about this movie. Okay. And how it got put together, and how this actress and this woman deserves a much better telling of her story. Mm-hmm. Because the actual story does not get justice, I don't think, from almost any adaptation. Okay. I mean, to start just with this movie, it's just boring. It is very boring. There's, the, there's nothing new or groundbreaking or interesting that this movie's done in trying to tell her story. Mm-hmm. I do think it's a fascinating story to tell because mm-hmm. she was one of the very few actresses in the golden age of Hollywood who really was devoted to the craft of acting mm-hmm. and was super introspective. Yeah. In a way, before we had the sort of acting renaissance that came about from like the Strasbourg Institute and stuff like that. Sure. She was incredibly ahead of her time. Mm-hmm. And she was troubled. I mean, she definitely had mental health issues. You know, we're we're going to talk about the accuracy of this movie up top, but it's not like these struggles that are depicted in this movie are wrong. It's just that they went about it in such a really rote, tropey way. Yeah. And while I feel like the movie does get across the horrors that, she was placed under Mm -hmm. and the fact that a lot of it was inflicted by the Hollywood machine and the media, Mm -hmm. it removes all the nuance and complexity of who Francis Farmer was. Yeah. I think the mistake they made here was they tried to tell her whole career story and not the story of them blacklisting her because that's, that's more interesting. Well, and, and blacklisting, a blacklisting has such a specific connotation because it, she was never brought before HUAC. Yes. This this is all they decided they didn't like her because she wasn't playing their game and they were going to make her life hell. Yeah. To me, blacklisted connotes such a specific sure, era in Hollywood. I, I, I agree. I, I do agree. This was a this was a different kind. It gets all of the main points and the high points that are, you know, known about her story. Mm-hmm. It depicts those with the heightened drama and intensity that they that they had. Mm-hmm. But then everything in between is so flat. Yeah. Writing wise and story wise. And it's like that in between is where the real heavy lifting has to come in. Because there's a whole lot known about those specific moments, you know, from the moment that she writes an essay questioning the existence of God to the moment where she's thrown in a horrible institution. Mm -hmm. It's all of the in-between is what makes the movie captivating. Yeah. I think of something like Spencer, which quite honestly, now having seen this, I go, oh, I see how Spencer and some of these other movies that have come out that are sort of a a fictional reimagining of a situation mm-hmm. have specifically pulled from a film like this. Sure. More intentionally trying to tell a fictional story than this one yes. did. But, you know, there's clearly a formula and an interesting thing here, but it's so unsuccessful because all of the parts 
that are meant to be fictional and thoughtful fall so flat other than the fact that we have a relatively good performance. Mm-hmm. It's very frustrating. And then it's just, and then it, 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 at a certain point, you're just like, well, now I don't care. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's frustrating because I think Francis Farmer's story is an incredible cautionary tale and one that deserves a good adaptation. Sure. I really do. This movie's not very good. It's just not no. very good. It's it's not. So the budget for the film was $8 million. That's not a whole lot, but it's not a big movie. No, it's a lot of Jessica Lange on, in period costume. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, it grossed $5 million. It was not a big hit. It was not mm. well regarded. And I mean, that's fair. It's not that great a movie. Nope. Critics at the time, I don't believe, were super like sold on this movie. Mm. So it's we'll, we'll get to later the reason why it was regarded in award stuff. And I don't think that's completely unwarranted. Sure. <laughs> this is one of many films that Mel Brooks produced through his company Brooks Films. Okay. As with The Elephant Man that came out in 1980, Mel Brooks did not want his name on the production itself. Sure. Because he didn't want to give the impression that any of these were comedies in any way. I just think that's wise. That's knowing what your brand is to a public and just being like, mm, I, want, I, don't, I don't want that to hurt this. He had a whole lot of involvement in like the late 70s, early 80s and producing like far more dramatic stuff. And like I said, Elephant Man broke David Lynch Mm -hmm. of all people. So he was a guy who was like, I want to find a way to bring in new talent that I find fascinating and interesting. Mm -hmm. But I I don't want to put my name on it because I don't want to ruin that opportunity. Mm. Um, So this is one of the movies that he funded. All right, well, let me make a note on the accuracy of Francis Farmer's story here, because a good chunk of this movie, specifically one of the biggest moments in this movie, is total bullshit. Francis Farmer's story has long been sensationalized, which is really frustrating, too, because her actual life was so intensely sensationalized when she really was just a curious, introspective person. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a lot that the movie gets right in the sense of giving us the sort of emotional weight that she was living under quite a lot mm-hmm. because she dared to question the power structure in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. However, she was also a real alcoholic okay. and she did suffer from mental health issues. Now, they were widely misdiagnosed at the time. Sure. And I, you know, today she would hopefully get better care and better help. But the really dark, sensational parts of this story are, at best, exaggerated, and at worst, when it comes to the most sensational scene in this movie, the lobotomy sequence, Mm -hmm. total and complete lies. Francis Farmer was never lobotomized. The story is based on a biography of Francis Farmer called Shadowland, written by a guy named William Arnold. This book has widely been discredited. There's a really great article that I'll post when I post about the show where they walk through everything that's wrong about Shadowland. Mm-hmm. And like it, it's, it, you know, he gets dates wrong. He gets timelines wrong. And then he just totally makes up some shit about her time in, in the institutions. Mm-hmm. The script was actually originally based on that book. And then they eventually decided to cut Arnold out of the movie. Hmm. 
And one of the ways that they decided to then try to make the movie, quote, based on original material was that they created the character of Harry York, Ah. Sam Shepard's character. We'll talk a little bit more about him uh, when we get to writing, but they they sort of went, okay, this book doesn't really work, and we're going to try to shove this guy out. So Arnold sued. But here's the problem, because Arnold wanted credit. Yeah. But in order to get credit, he had to admit in court that he was never actually seeking to write an official biography of Francis Farmer. Mm. He said on the record it was, quote, fictionalized. Ah, okay. And per our director, quote, we didn't want to nickel and dime people to death with facts, unquote. Oh, fuck you. I mean, I get that when, like, you truncate a timeline, when you be like, okay, it may have really been this studio or this thing didn't happen on this specific. Like, I, I get those things. But fabricating a huge thing that drastically changes the events of someone's life when you're filming a biopic is not okay. And, and I should be clear, the lobotomy thing was something that Arnold made up. Mm-hmm. and then allowed to sit in culture for decades and decades. Mm-hmm. Um, so the producers thought that was true. Sure. Okay. Like that was that was his hoax that only more recently did people go, hey, fuck that noise. I, I don't want to put that all on the filmmakers. Okay. But the whole thing about Harry York and this love interest is really fucking painful. And it hurts who Frances was because Frances was fiercely independent throughout her entire life. Mm. She did marry many times. She did have many different people she was attached to. But that, the type of person she was was fiercely independent. And to strip that away mm-hmm. with this love interest character does a huge disservice to the story. Yeah. It should all be about Frances. Sure. Yeah, it should. It, everything should point back to how she handled a situation, right, wrong, or indifferent. There's no reason for for Harry to be there. And while I don't think it's terrible for the story they're telling, mm-hmm. I still it's just so unnecessary in terms of adapting her actual story. Mm-hmm. I think of a movie like, and not a lot of people have seen this, but there's a movie called Bronson with Tom Hardy, where he plays this like one of the most dangerous inmates in the prison system in Britain. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating because he's mugging to the camera. It's all in his face and in his psyche. Mm-hmm. That's what I wish this movie had been. Yeah. Where she's getting to be brash and monologuing for the camera and cutting back in and out. Maybe even with an I, Tanya vibe. Yeah, okay. But like, that's the kind of story that Frances Farmer deserves. Yeah. Because she's that kind of personality. So, Yeah. To add to the sources on the lobotomy definitely never happening, doctors, nurses, and orderlies at the Western State Hospital have consistently and strenuously denied allegations she was ever lobotomized. And they note that the doctor who did perform lobotomies at that hospital completed every procedure in front of witnesses, just like we see in the film. Sure. So somebody would have reported on it. And there's no account. Sure. Everyone who knew Frances Farmer, and yes, this includes her family, who she was very estranged from, also deny it. Her sister, who she was distant from but then got closer later in life, Mm -hmm. said the hospital asked permission 
But her father, who is sympathetically portrayed in this film. Yeah, he is. Was horrified and threatened legal action, quote, if they tried any of their guinea pig operations on her, unquote. Wow. Good for him. Like, this never happened. (laughs) And it's very frustrating because it also, it just spoils the whole ending of the movie, too. The way they have her portrayed in that last scene is so fucking frustrating. Yes. Because it's not who she was. Yes, she was, she toned things down, but like she had a career after all of these events. She had her own television series that she starred in. Mm -hmm. She did continue troubles with alcohol. And then near the end of her life, some of her friends got her to tell her story on the record. Mm -hmm. And it was shocking. They did make a television movie out of that memoir. It's called Will There Really Be a Morning? That book claimed all of the real brutal conditions in the hospital that she dealt with. Uh-huh. There is some minor controversy because the book was published by a friend after her death. Oh, okay. Some people have, have conjectured that she may have ghostwritten or edited things. Her friend Jean Ratcliffe claims that she only wrote one chapter, the final chapter, which described directly after her death. Oh, okay. So if we're going to be honest, that book is a far better source material for what went on in her life. It's coming mm-hmm. from what we, can, what we think is her to her, her version of events. Exactly. And Shadowlands is a, a garbage book. Yeah. In some ways, it gave people a portrait into her. In fact, uh, Kurt Cobain, of all people, was very intrigued by Francis Farmer. He has a song Nirvana did called Francis Farmer Will Have Her Revenge on Seattle. Which is also, you know, when you told me that, I was like, oh, that's why his daughter is named Francis, and they're from Seattle, so that makes sense. The media attention and the system that he felt hanging over him, he really identified with. Sure. So the story inspired so many people. Like I said, I just wish it was the real story. (laughs) Sure. Well, I wish it was. I mean, there's no biopic that's absolutely 100% faithful to the person's life. But I wish it was, uh, it's frustrating that not only is this not a very good movie, but like then to find out that it's a lot of it's not true is frustrating. Yeah, put it this way. Francis Farmer's story is so compelling in and of itself Mm -hmm. without you needing to dress it up. Sure. And honestly, I kind of hope somebody decides to come along and try to do another, another pass at this. That'd be worth it. Because her life really does deserve that. She's a fascinating character. To have Jessica Lange play her mom. That'd be great. That would be so good. That'd be good. Because that that is like her mom is shown not in the best light, but she she is a better through line than a fictional character. Oh, let me tell you, we're, we're going to talk about that. Oh, okay. But we're going to start first with our writing. Okay. So two of our writers. Uh-huh. Eric Berggren and Christopher DeVore both worked on the 1980 adaptation of The Elephant Man. Okay, which I've never seen. I've never seen, but by all accounts, is a very great movie. Um, okay. It got lots of great reviews. It did very well in 1980. So they were tapped to, you know, take another crack at a movie that's not based on a play, but is definitely theatrical. Sure, I'm uh, sure, yeah. Eric Berggren would write The Dark Wind after this, and Christopher DeVore wrote 1990's Hamlet, the Zeffirelli version. Oh, okay. 
And then we have Nicholas Kazan, the son of very famous director Elia Kazan and the father of Zoe Kazan. Ah, she's fabulous. We like her a lot. A very famous Hollywood family. Before this, didn't do a whole lot of note, but after this, he wrote At Close Range, Patty Hearst, Reversal of Fortune, Matilda, Fallen, Bicentennial Man, Enough, The Whole Truth, and Blood Moon. Okay. So, what do we think of the writing of this movie? It's crap. Yeah, it's not. The way it's presented is not compelling, because her story is compelling, but it's not presented in a compelling or interesting way, so it's us. I mean... It's competent. I have to give it that. Mm. Like, there's nothing There's nothing in this movie that just makes me go, ugh. Because they took the source material and they made a story out of it. Yeah. Like, there is a story. It's not necessarily a good one. But it's not like some of those movies where you just go, I don't, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. The, the sin of this movie is that it's just dull. Yeah, it's very dull. Like, it's, again, I, I can't say that it's competent because it doesn't present its story. In an interesting way. (sighs) And there's very little connective tissue. It's just filling time until the next big dramatic moment. Exactly. Until she, you know, till she does something that riles other people up. And it's a two hour, 22 minute movie. (laughs) Yeah, it's a long time to be like, it's not good. It's not good. It's Screenwriting 101, and for a movie like this, with such a compelling story and character, mm-hmm. you did your best to make it dull as shit, and that's mostly on our writers. <laughs> Harry York was not real at all, as we've mentioned. He was based on a political radical named Stuart Jacobson, who claimed to be a lover of Francis Farmer. Okay. I say claimed because most people close to Francis claimed that he had never even met her. Oh, okay. So they have a character based on a guy who lied about knowing her. Yep. Jesus. And they went, this is how we make this movie. They they really thought that was the connective tissue. Yeah, they wanted to have it framed by a man. Which is so stupid. Yep. That's not the through line. The through line is her mother and boy... Let's talk about our director. Okay. This man is named Graham Clifford. He is mostly an editor. Oh, that makes me more mad at him. This is his directing debut. Let me tell you about the movies he edited before this. Mm-hmm. Images, Don't Look Now, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, The Man Who Fell to Earth, and The Postman Always Rings Twice. He should know better. Yeah, he should. Like, editors? Can make amazing directors because they know I got to construct this whole fucking movie out of what you shot. So if you don't shoot it, I can't edit it. Editors make great filmmakers. They do. If they know how to also contribute to story notes. Well, they can, but no. (sighs) After this, he directed Burke and Will's Gleaming the Cube, Deception, and then shit tons of television movies. Gleaming the Cube. Yeah. Oh God, that movie. This is not a this is not a great effort from him. No, it's not. Again, it's so much nothing. I was like, this is such a fascinating, interesting character study that you could go in so many good directions with. Mm-hmm. There's so many approaches that you could take that would give it some flavor, and you went with just the most boring take. Yep. Boy, howdy. I 
It's it, it's so frustrating. <laughs> it's, it's not good. Well, let me add to that that apparently a ton of context wound up cut from the final filmed. They apparently filmed a lot more scenes showing context for Frances's breakdown and her relationship with her mother. Why wasn't that in the movie, Mr. Editor? Well, that's a great question, because you want to know what they kept instead of cutting? They wanted more scenes with Harry York. Of course they did. I'm annoyed. This sounds like producer intervention, which I'm... Mel Brooks might have to get some blame here. I don't don't care. It's bad. (laughs) Clifford stated that they had outtakes. They had these outtakes. He could have maybe done a director's cut somewhere down the road. Mm-hmm. However, he put them in storage and they were thrown out at some point without his knowledge. Oh, well, that's frustrating. Those deleted scenes are gone forever. Mm, not cool. Now, let me give you a who could have been better. Ooh, okay. And steal yourself for this one because I don't know how this would work, okay. but I kind of don't hate it. David Lynch. I don't know. Because the story is so bad. (laughs) But let's say David Lynch is brought in and you let him write it. Okay. If he gets to write it, then okay. Then we'll be okay. What an interesting take that would be with his style. Mm -hmm. Mixing with old Hollywood. Yeah. Because he's he's done this with new Hollywood in several movies. That's what he spent, you know, the last half of his filmmaking career doing. Yep was talking about Hollywood and the system and the the surreality of being in it. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, whoa, what a great story for him. Yep. You know, he turned this down to do Dune. Okay. But, you know, Mel Brooks offered him the thing. He he was so happy with how the Elephant Man turned out that he was like, I'd love for you to come on and make this picture and what a what a different movie this would be. Again, if they gave him that creative control, I mm-hmm. feel like he would have tapped into something. Yeah. Something really cool. And that's one of those lost to history ones. Yeah, that's disappointing. Woof. Anyway, let's talk about the, the one thing that we can say is legitimately pretty good about this movie. Mm-hmm. And that is our cast. Yeah. And we're going to start with someone we literally just talked about. It is Jessica Lange playing Frances Farmer. Mm. In the same year, she is in Frances in this huge, dramatic leading role, and then she's in Tootsie. That's cool. What a one-two punch of movies for her. Yeah, a little bit. What do we think of Jessica Lange in this movie? I think she's fabulous. Bless her heart, she's trying. She's giving it her all. She really is. Every single scene. There's there's a fire in her eyes and all the different stuff, you know, every moment, even when the writing won't support the level of emotion she's giving, she's mm-hmm. pushing it as far as she can. Yeah. And you get the sense that, yes, she goes wild and you roll your eyes because the writing's so bad that it feels mm-hmm. just like these acting moments. But when you really stop to think about it, it's like she really tapped into the fact that this woman had a lot of emotional instability. Yeah. She had wild mood swings. She had a lot of baggage. And Lang tapped into every bit of that. It's just, you know, nobody else around her <laughs> seems to understand that that needs words to support it. Yeah. She's the highlight. And this is one of those movies where it's acting the movie. Like, it just is. Yes, absolutely. But if you like good performances in movies... You're going to roll your eyes a lot, but there's a lot really good here that she does. 
and she really you know you have to applaud her for going for it you just do yeah no i mean she's trying and she's doing what she can but the the disconnectedness of the movie just keeps it from going anywhere really doing anything yeah she urged them to complete filming in sequence due to the taxing nature of the emotions that she had to deal with however the budget did not allow for that Mm. So they had to shoot out of sequence in order to maintain the money. I mean, that's not that unusual. Like, I understand wanting to, but like, if they can't make it work, they can't. Yep. And the arrest sequence where she is in the bathroom mm-hmm. was apparently particularly frustrating and demanding for Jessica. She was, of course, nude in that scene. Yep. And there was a problem with the bathroom door. It kept getting stuck over and over again when the cops were trying to open the door. Mm-hmm. It's a three-minute scene. It took four days to shoot. Yeah. Because they kept having technical issues. And Lang said she started to feel just as used and manipulated as Francis was. I I understand that. That's a particularly vulnerable position to be acting in and then for it to be going longer than necessary is just really taxing. Yeah. It doesn't sound like anything was like intentional on anyone's part. But I think when you've delved as deeply into that character as she has, Mm -hmm. you're going to suddenly be like, God, this is just like what she was fucking dealing with all the time. Yeah, that's fair. So I can can see how that was frustrating. And um, I think she enjoyed the break going over to Tootsie. Yeah, I can imagine that one felt like just like being on a cartoon almost just because it's much more jovial except for, you know, the Dustin Hoffman of it all. And by all accounts, she said she had a good relationship with Dustin on the film. So Sure. Good. That's nice. Now, uh, who could have been better for the ages? Oh, okay. Because there were a lot of people considered for this. That doesn't surprise me. This is a big role. The two top contenders, besides Jessica Lange, were Diane Keaton and Goldie Hawn. Oh, wow. Knowing who Francis is, because Jessica Lange is a dead ringer for Francis. Mm-hmm. When you see the two pictures of each other and like, you know, the scar on her lip while she's in the in court and there's a photo of her in court in 1943. And it's like, oh, my God, you're the same person. Mm-hmm. You know, from a looks perspective, they're exactly the same. If I'm going for look, Diane Keaton. But I feel like Goldie would bring something more vulnerable. But I think that's all she would bring. Yeah, that's true. I think Diane could be both vulnerable and the smartass. Yeah, because Frances was a tough, tough woman. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that I like either of those. There's some others in the considered section that I do like. So um, also considered for the role, Jane Fonda, mm-hmm. Catherine Ross, Sissy Spacek, mm. Mia Farrow, Liza Minnelli, Susan Sarandon, Tuesday Weld, Anne Archer, Susan Blakely, who would play Frances Farmer the next year in an adaptation of her memoir, Mm. Blythe Danner, Susan Day, Patty Duke, Sally Field, Sybil Shepard, Meryl Streep, and Natalie Wood. (gasps) Wow. (laughs) Sybil. Sybil, sure. The only name I'm surprised you didn't say was Meryl Streep. (laughs) I did say Meryl Streep. You did? It got buried in there in my brain. She's on that list. Of course she is. Because, of course. However, she was busy doing another movie that we're going to talk about in this series. Yeah, I don't know. 
like Sybil, sure. And we already said Diane Keaton, but nah. I, I think the unique combination of Jessica Lang being such a dead ringer and the fact that I believed her as both bright-eyed and excited about acting and also tough as nails. Like, I bought her as the character the whole time, which is saying something when your script is utter garbage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think we had anybody else. All right, well, let's talk about a man we've mentioned several times on this show, mm-hmm. both in The Right Stuff and Steel Magnolias. Yep. And for some reason, playing a fictional character for no fucking good reason in this movie, it's Sam Shepard playing Harry York. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I don't care. Here's what I appreciate is that Sam Shepard way too often is pegged to play the tough guy who can't get over his like mask of invulnerability. And at least in this movie, he's a lot softer and more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Like I have, I will give him credit for that because at no point do I buy that this guy is too tough to admit his own emotions. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, he loves this woman, whether or not they're ever able to be together. He just wants good for her. It's just that the character's so unnecessary. <laughs> yeah, it really is unnecessary. And he's just like, at the same, like on the one hand, you're like, yay, he's going to save her. But then it's like, they don't have romance. They don't live happily ever after. So it's kind of like, who cares? Like, it's really all for nothing. Uh, again, all my judgments on acting have to be divorced from the movie itself, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is really sad. <laughs> Which it just tells you how bad the movie is that you're like, well, he did a pretty good job, but, (laughs) you know, it is what it is. I would say it's one of the better performances I've seen Sam Shepard in Mm -hmm. and more notably unique than some of the other stuff. Yeah. He actually seems kind of charming in this movie. Yeah. (sighs) Whatever. All right. Well, let's talk about another actress that we might have good things to say And that is, for our final main role, Kim Stanley playing Lillian Farmer. Hmm. She was mostly a stage actress. She was the lead in Picnic and Bus Stop on Broadway and Blanche in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof in London. Oh, wow. Okay. Before this, for film and TV, she did a lot of television appearances, was in The Goddess, she did Scout's narration in To Kill a Mockingbird, mm-hmm. Seance on a Wet Afternoon, and the 1966 version of The Three Sisters. Oh, okay. What do we think of Kim Stanley? She's great. I mean, she she really is as good as Jessica Lang. She has a difficult role, too, because she's both Francis's advocate, but also her enemy. It's really important to her mom that her daughter be famous. Yeah. And successful and liked. And what's funny is that in the beginning, you know, her daughter being difficult and talking back, she's still proud of her. She's like, they're talking about you, sweetie. That's awesome. Like you, you, you still kicked butt. Like, that's great. But then it really becomes like, oh, this is a lot more difficult. This isn't just like you being a young lady with an attitude. Like this is getting out of hand. and. She plays that very well. That's the story of the movie. Well, that was th- that was a through line they should have used. And for the life of me, I can't understand why they decided that had to be the subplot. Mm-hmm. Like you sit there and you go, but this is your movie. This mm-hmm. is your whole movie here. Yeah. And I think what's great about Kim Stanley is she does bring out the complexity of the character. 
because Lillian Farmer isn't just a one-note villain. Mm-hmm. And she's not always wrong. Overall, she's, you know, betrayed her daughter, but you understand her perspective. You don't mm-hmm. have to like it, but you do have to listen to it, and she commands the respect of it. Yeah. You had everything, and you threw it all away. I'm not going to let you do that. Mm. And while that's a horrible way to, to think about it, when it's clearly destroying this person that you love, there's this flip side of, like, that's not a bad point you're making. <laughs> it's, it's a hard role. She does a masterful job of it, so... Again, it's just like, why was this not the actual thing we talked about this whole time? Mm-hmm. Woof. Other fun notes about her career. She appeared in The Three Sisters on stage. She actually tanked the show because the critics were not ready for method-trained actors to perform Chekhov. Mm. So she was one of the original... She was almost a Francis Farmer of the stage. Like She was one of the original method actors who kind of had to break through. Mm-hmm. She left the stage, wound up teaching many, many actresses after that, uh, including Lauren Hutton. Oh, okay. Couple of who could have been betters. Mm. Kim Hunter, who was in A Streetcar Named Desire and Planet of the Apes. Mm. She played opposite Roddy McDowell as Kira, mm. the other lead ape. Also who could have been better, Celeste Holm, who was in All About Eve and High Society. I don't know. Having a stage actress do this makes a whole ton of sense. Mm-hmm. Kim Stanley's very good here. And that's it for our main cast, because everybody else is like moving in and out of this movie at like warp speed, but mm-hmm. whatever. Let's talk about some Arpons. Arpons. James Karen playing Judge Hillier. This is Mr. Teague, the real estate guy in Poltergeist. Hmm. He's a bad man. Gerald S. O'Laughlin playing the lobotomy doctor. He also was Harold Nye, one of the detectives in In Cold Blood. Oh, okay. Keone Young playing the Chinese doctor who is with Harry when they try to go rescue her. This is Mr. Wu from Deadwood. Oh, okay. (laughs) Interesting. A very early role for him. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Lane Smith playing Dr. Symington. We talked about him in Red Dawn. Mm -hmm. He's... A bad guy and grumpy old man extraordinaire. Mm -hmm. So weird to see him this this early. Jonathan Banks as a hitchhiker. That was hilarious. And he has that voice. Like, that's his voice. But way early. He's so cute. I love him. It's so bizarre to me. Like, apparently 82 was the year that so many people that we, like, grew up watching was, like, their big movie break. Mm-hmm. It's very funny. Jane Jenkins, the lady at the Roosevelt Hotel, she was a casting director and worked on movies that we've talked about, including Red Dawn, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Misery, and Last Action Hero. Mm-hmm. Nancy Foy, an autograph girl, she was also a casting director that worked on The Outsiders. Okay. Anne Haney, playing the hairdresser, she played Greta, Jim Carrey's assistant in Liar Liar. Mm-hmm. Jack Riley playing Bob Barnes. He was the voice of Stu Pickles on Rugrats. <laughs> it's one of those, somehow I place you, but I can't tell from where. Oh, the recesses of my mind. That's why. <laughs> John Randolph playing the kindly judge. He was Clark Sr. in Christmas Vacation. Oh, wow. <laughs> 
Sandra Seacat playing the drama teacher. She is actually a highly regarded acting teacher who expanded on Stanislavski's method mm-hmm. with using Carl Jung's theories of dream work. So she's a very well-known acting teacher, and one of her biggest students is Jessica Lang. Okay. Vern Taylor playing a studio executive. He played Tom Worley, Sid's dad, in An Officer and a Gentleman. Hmm. Okay. As a reporter slash publicist slash photographer, M.C. Ganey, Swamp Thing from Con Air and Tom Friendly on Lost. <laughs> okay. Both playing mental patients in the asylum, Zelda Rubenstein <gasps> and Angelica Houston. Wow. I didn't see either of them. Angelica Houston was the one who was huddled up under the covers. Mm-hmm. So you see it for like just a moment and I caught the eyes. I was like, that's her. Oh, okay. (laughs) And I think Zelda was like in the back with wild hair and something going on. Mm. And they're there. And finally, and I had to point this out, uncredited in his third ever film playing Luther slash Man in Alley is Kevin fucking Costner. Yeah, David had to stop. I was like, can you tell who that is? And so like he ran it and I was like, no, I can't. He's like, it's Kevin Costner. I was like, wow. I wouldn't have recognized him. And that's sad. I've been watching all of Yellowstone lately, and I didn't catch it. If you if you listen and you listen for his voice, you hear it and you're like, ah, it's Kevin Costner. He can't get rid of that, that voice mm-hmm. that gives him away every time. But it is wild. <laughs> all right, well, let's talk about awards. Mm-hmm. It was nominated for two Academy Awards. Okay. Best Actress for Jessica Lange. Mm-hmm. Best Supporting Actress for Kim Stanley. I think those are fair, and those are the awards that this movie deserves. This is not a good movie, but the acting performances overcome it to be recognized. Mm -hmm. That happens a lot. There are some movies where it's just like, you're doing an amazing job. This movie's just not very good. And it's just what happens. Yeah. All right, a few pieces of trivia to wrap things up. Jessica Lange's performance in this film is reportedly Anthony Hopkins' favorite ever from an actress. Okay. Jessica Lange and Sam Shepard would strike up a romance after working on this film. They eventually had two children together. Hmm. To best show the effects of the lobotomy, DP Laszlo Kovacs came up with the idea of removing the eye lights that he was using throughout the film on the camera. So he would get the twinkle in the eyes, and then after that, he said, let's take them out. Oh, okay. It's a very subtle shift, but it does a lot on screen. And Kovacs is a legendary DP, so smart guy. And a final fun fact, our composer for this film doing some very cheesy music is none other than Bond theme composer himself, John Barry. Hmm, okay. Stick to Bond, my dude. This one, this one's a stinker. Yeah, it's not very good. Just like the rest of this movie. And that leads us to ratings. For every film, we have a dedicated rating system. For this one, oh boy. This movie was so boring, I don't remember what she had. (laughs) A lot of drinks. Shots of tequila? Yeah, sure. Oh my god. Everything else I can come up with is inappropriate. Ugh, what a a bleak movie. It is a bleak movie. Uh, It's bleak without substance, though. That's what's so frustrating. Alright, it's coming to me. One and a half. Yeah, that that feels right. The two performances are worth it. I don't okay, I don't know if they're worth it. No, but they are good. Their praise is valid. Yes. Yeah, let's put it this way. They are worth the nominations. Yeah, I'm not mad about them. 
they they are pushing so hard to overcome a bad movie. Oh yeah. That you know, when you when you can isolate from them, and like I said, even Sam Shepard, who is somebody that's very hit or miss, I like him in this movie. Mm-hmm. I think he's doing a great job. I hate the character, but I think he's doing the right amount of acting for what he needs to do and softening his normal image a lot to help mm-hmm. serve us the story. Yeah. It's just, it's such a boring movie. It is. It's just boring. And my number one complaint with movies is, look, if you are bad, but you are bonkers and wild and entertaining, I will give you a whole lot more points sure. than if you are just dull and mediocre. Yep. Dull and mediocre is the death of movies. I agree. And this is one of those. So it's one and a half drinks. Yep, that's fair. All right. There had to be a stinker in here somewhere. Yeah. There always is. There always is. This is definitely one. But what is next? Are you prepared for a three plus hour epic? Oh, are we watching Titanic again? No. Damn. But almost. Oh. In terms of scale and scope. Oh. We are watching Gandhi. This has been on my list to have seen because it's one of those everybody talks about it in such reverent tones movies. Yeah. And I've seen it, but I only saw it in um, little, like snippets because it was our the week before exams film that we watched in my geography class. Hey, that's a good place to watch a movie like this. Yeah, I mean, it was fine. It was certainly interesting, but it's also like, I don't care. So I doodled a lot. So I don't remember a whole lot. I mean, it's it should be a fascinating story. I, I will do my research on the accuracy of the story, of course. Yep. Just to make sure we get a little context on that. And sure. uh, we'll have a very long, epic discussion about a very long, epic movie. <laughs> well, all right, then. So until next time, have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.